0: to Overdue Rentals, where we talk about films that maybe didn't get their fair shake in their day, or maybe even big films that we still think people have forgotten about and want to talk about more. I'm Matthew Shuckman.
1: And I'm Mike Reyes.
0: And today we are so glad to be joined by our good friend, media journalist, and just all around amazing person, Max Avery. Hey, Max.
2: Hey, guys. Uh, So uh, we're going to be talking about all the great Mountaineers, right? That's what the Explorers is all about.
0: Yeah, oh, absolutely. Because that, that is what we're talking about today. We're talking about uh, Joe Dante's Explorers.
2: All right, so if you've never seen Explorers before, it is, uh, if I was the studio executive in the 80s, I would just pitch it as, as it's E.T. in reverse. It's, its uh, instead of uh, the, the the ship coming down and uh, hanging with the kid, uh, the kids go up and they hang with the aliens. Yay! Hey! That's how I would pitch it. Um, but... Uh, not yeah, like it's probably it's, not that far off of how it was pitched. Yeah, yeah. It is definitely a post ET, you, know, uh, you know, sort of Spielberg inspired, uh, you know, uh, mid 80s movie. And um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's basically it's about uh, three uh, precocious uh, teens. I, I guess they would be like, what, 14, 15, something like that? Yeah, they are
1: middle schoolers.
2: They're middle schoolers, but they're like late middle schoolers. So like, yeah, like thir- between thirteen and fifteen. And uh, there, there's there's basically the the there's the 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 dweeby, the science dweeb, played by River Phoenix. There's the, uh, the the sort of the 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 mysterious loner kid, uh played by Jason Preston. And, and then there's uh, Ethan Hawke, who's the the central character, and he he's sort of the 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 idealistic dreamer character. And basically, like these, these three friends start uh, sharing a vision um, of uh, like kind of a blueprint for how to build a spaceship, and they build it. Uh, you know, uh, without without Lockheed Martin helping them at all. Or and uh, um, they, uh, they they build a spaceship, and uh, and they and they uh they they get transported up to uh to meet some aliens and uh i think that's that's it in a nutshell um but it does not at all do justice to the you know the just the sheer uh uh uh, wild audacity of this movie um which uh when you when you watch it when you're a kid it's so much fun because you're like oh yeah i want to go on a spaceship with my buddies um, when you watch it as an adult, it it has so much more, like, crazy resonance and, and so, so many fun satiric things about it. I mean, even beyond
0: fun satiric things, you know, like, I yeah, I, I just rewatched it last night again just to, to give myself a refresher. And I remember watching it as a kid because this is the move, kind of movie I would watch, like, all the time. Like, my parents would go out to the video stores, like, what do you want? It's so, like, get Explorers. Like, didn't you see Explorers already? He's like, get it again, you know? And... But much like it's funny because much like everybody from our age group wants to reminisce about the never-ending story and and watching our treks go in the mud and it destroyed their their uh, their you know their childhood into adulthood is like but what's even worse about the never-ending story is like the the main antagonist was the idea of nothingness you know and it's the same it's a very similar thing with explorers not being that dramatic as for what they're fighting against but I remember there's a scene when they're first going up into the, the test of the, the spaceship they built, not even going into space, not even knowing that's what's going to happen. And Ethan Hawke turns to Jason Preston, and they were talking about, you know, like how he had the dream. And at that point, Jason Preston hadn't had the dream. He's like, I don't dream. And it was very like, he's li- talking about his life. He's talking about coming from like an almost broken home, having no idea what's going to happen to him. It's much more about <laughs> the idea that this is kid saying, I don't have dreams. I have nothing that
2: I think about. And it was like, holy shit, this is what I watched when I was a kid?
0: It's, it's, it's mm-hmm.
2: kind of crazy. With that character in particular, uh, with the Jason Preston character, there's, there's a lot going on that is unsaid, you know, in terms of his home life, his relationship with his father, which is clearly abusive, you know, and his father's sort of like an unemployed alcoholic, you know, and he lives in like kind of like a little shanty house and uh yeah and and he, and he keeps talking about his dad he's sort of like has like you know like a like a like a love hate thing going on and and when he sees the alien father at the end he immediately recognizes sort of an abusive <laughs> father figure it's funny too that you mentioned the never ending story you jumped right to that because it's like cuz uh wolfgang peterson who directed the never ending story almost made explorers and the, no. i think i believe this the story is he he wanted to make it in bavaria and they're like oh, this takes place in america <laughs> let's let's not do that
1: well just you look at the pedigree of this movie this drops in 85 and it's an interesting place for joe dante because 81 he does the howling then mm-hmm. he jumps into gremlins and a year after he does explorers and there's like all this promise, like Paramount's all hot on the movie, you know, because it's 1985, E.T. is still a thing, and Back to the Future is just hitting, and Paramount's all of a sudden like, yeah, okay, cool. So, um, Joe, this movie you're making, uh, we want to release it now, or a couple of weeks from now, uh, you need to stop cutting it. We're gonna just release it like this. And from what I was reading, there's like an hour and a half at least of this movie missing. It's another alternate Paramount cut we're not going to get, like Event Horizon. This
0: is this is this is very much why we have, Max here, because Max got all the yeah. dish on this. I think. Well, for as much as a, somebody who wasn't, didn't work on the film knows.
1: Oh. Yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, so, 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 what
2: Mike, so, so, what Mike just said is like half right, I guess. Like the what the, what actually happened was, um, uh, first of all, you're absolutely right that this was. Totally, like you know, a Spielberg Peon type movie. Like I think after E. T. hit, you just had like you started to see like a glut of sort of those you know sort of fantasy driven movies. You know, with kids Adjected in Suburbania. the suburbs. Yeah, like you like even in just that year, like you had uh, Daryl, you had oh, Goonies, Darryl. you had Young. Yeah, you had Young Sherlock Holmes um mm-hmm. you know and, and you also had the uh, real genius you know you had uh, uh my science project and and uh all, back all, to the future. all, all these are on our list to
0: talk about too oddly enough yeah Basically.
2: yeah yeah and back to the future was released just a week before this movie and it just steamrolled over it um but, but what happened in, in but what happened in terms of the actual making of the movie is it was um Uh, At the the time, Paramount was being run uh, uh, partly by Jeffrey Katzenberg, and this was a Katzenberg
1: project.
2: And then, um, you know, basically what happened is in the middle of making the movie, uh, Katzenberg and uh, Michael Eisner left to go to Disney, and uh, basically there was a changing of the guard, and as happens with a a lot of those situations, you know, the, the incoming executives, they don't want the previous executives movies to succeed. They need they want sacrificial lambs, basically. And so yeah, like so they they just told Joe Dante, like, you know, hey, like we're gonna, you know, we want to release this, you know, it, it was already a rush production, but they 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 were like it was going to come out at the end of August 1985. And they're like, they want it on July 4th. And then uh July and July 4th happened to be the day of the live aid concert, which was one of the biggest cultural events of the eighties. And so like that, nobody went to the movies and Back to the Future just totaled them. And yeah, it just sort of, so it was, it was sort of a, a you know a, a, a really bad confluence of events that sort of, you know, led to the movie, A, you know, not being finished properly and B, just being, you know, trounced at the box. Yeah.
0: Well, it's, it's funny too. Cause you know, we, we talk about all these other films and you're know, not to kind of go back on the point, but this is almost the reason why Mike and I have this podcast is because, yeah, I'm not talking about on the day of release or as it's, you know, in theaters even. But again, for our age group, and even not our just for our age group, for all younger generations now too, it's all about Back to the Future, Ghostbusters. And even, I know it's Joe Dante, Gremlins and stuff like that, but Explorers is the type of movie that even though it may not be up to the same pedigree in certain aspects when people think about it, and while it's definitely not a perfect movie, it means more to me in my heart than all those other movies do, and that's why I kind oh, yeah, of same. see it. And that's why, while it's getting its Blu-ray release on May 25th, you know, as you're listening to this, go out and check it out because you need to,
1: especially because it's Shout yeah. Factory and Shout Factory treats their titles well.
2: Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, I no, the, 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 yeah. The folks at Shout are fantastic, and I know they they put some love and care into this. And uh, what really has me excited about the Shout Factor release is um, I actually talked to Joe Dante a few years ago uh, about Explorers specifically, and he, you know, I I remember asking, you know, like, you know, didn't you didn't you have like a like a rough cut or something, like even on like VHS or something? And he's like, yeah, I did, and then it was stolen in a. Uh, a, a burglary like some 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 people came to his house and stole vHs tapes. God knows like what what they wanted to do with them just probably you know uh, tape uh magnum pi over it or something i'm but like but at the time I talked to him, he was fairly convinced that none of that material existed as with a lot of paramount titles from that time like they would just discard you know trims and deleted scenes and you know uh and uh, from a lot of their films of that era, and uh, but apparently they've discovered some new stuff somehow, so like i'm I'm really psyched to uh to dig into that but um i I, I have a question for you guys yeah ooh what was your first experience with this movie
0: I, think- I actually don't know if I can remember because it's definitely something that I have such vivid memories of watching constantly, but I don't remember if I saw it off of a VHS rental first or if I saw it on HBO first, I, it's hard to tell. Um, I, do, I do know though, that it's, it's, it's one of those few films that I could have at each point of my life after seeing it almost given you a minute by minute playback of what happens just by telling you. But I don't know if I can remember the first time I actually saw it. I really can't.
1: I think I actually landed on it through it might have been through video rental, because, yeah, I think it was the the poster art that really drew me into it, and the fact that just on the side of the even just the side of the spine, when you had those old paramount tapes and it was just like a white strip with like the logo, the Explorer's font itself is just something that really catches your eye, especially as a kid. Growing up on 80s, 90s sci fi, and just it, it's to the point where even just the title was like, okay, that's coming home with me tonight. And ever since then, you know, the, the, the one thing that really triggers my memory of this is the Jerry Goldsmith score, especially the theme to this movie, because I didn't remember the different variations of it until I, you know, rewatched the movie. And to Matt's point, this is an amazing film to watch as an adult and just sort of remember the stuff that you were into as a kid because of it like building lego creations and building sort of your own little models and stuff and thinking this is going to get me to space
2: yeah i think i think i came across it the same i, I think it was like you know it, it, it is it is a worthy movie for your podcast because it is like it, it it was not a ubiquitous movie it was not like back to the future or ghostbusters or gremlins it was like it it was it was the movie it was the movie that you loved and none of your friends had seen uh but i i think my first experience with it was just like yeah like on cable rotation you know probably when i was 5 or 6 and it was sort of like why why wasn't this movie like a big hit like why can't i you know what? Why aren't there toys? Why aren't there like you know? Why isn't there a whole industry? Why aren't there sequels? You know? Yeah. Why um, is there a Commodore game? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well,
0: you know, it's funny though thinking about it, and I- I've always thought this too, but it wasn't until I rewatched it that it made a little more sense to me. And I- I'm. It-, it had this issue, and I don't know. I don't know if it was because of the rush cut now, or maybe this is just the way it's meant to be. Because this is definitely something that was. A telltale sign of a film from the day if you couldn't tell by visuals, if you just heard it, let's say, um is that it really just does breeze by so much of the story to where the fact that in my memory, I remember the whole Dick Miller storyline being a lot more pertinent and maybe even more flushed out than it was. and to realizing he only has like two scenes in the movie. And yes, it's implied, I guess, that, He probably had some visions when he was a kid and that's why he's a helicopter pilot. Um, So that's why, you know, there's no repercussions about thinking what happens when they finally come back and Dick Miller not chasing after them. But it's one of those things where I wondered if, I mean, I could go back probably and find on YouTube, the Siskel and Ebert review or something like that. But for people who were reviewing it, who weren't kids, who weren't teenagers, just how I am now talking about movies all the time, saying, "Ah, well, you know there wasn't enough exposition to this, or you know, yeah, it's implied, but you know they needed to flush it out more. I wonder how much was damaged in the reviews of those days because it wasn't flushed out, but it actually, if you just paid attention, meant a lot
2: here here I, we we can get into kind of what was lost uh uh because I, I I'm aware of some of. The big points that were on the cutting room floor, but but I think the, the interesting, the more interesting thing to me, and I've I talked about this with Joe, and he just kind of he just kind of brushed brushed it by because it's like, to, and I understand why, because it's like to him, it's just an unfinished movie, like to him it's the rough cut, you know, and it's and it and it's uh, you know just sort of pasted together, but I think in the sort of excising of big portions of it, um. It kind of helps it in a weird way because it becomes more dream logic. It becomes more sort of Jungian and more you know representational. Um, You know, like uh, for for example, the mother character played by Mary Kay Place. Like you know, she's a great actress, and you're like, oh, why is she in this movie for like thirty seconds? (laughs) And you know, it's but it's sort of like it uh, it works because you know, then she just becomes like, you know, representative of just mom, you know, okay. like sort of almost like a, it like a, you know, like an adult, like an adult in a Peanuts cartoon, you know, like, you know, it's just like, you know, the, they're just the figure, like they're just the mom figure. And like, oh, the same I thing with Amanda Peel
0: um, the idea. I mean, we, we know that Rura Phoenix's parents, also whose father is played by James Cromwell. Um, yeah. We, we know why they don't follow his life as much as far as what he does beyond what's in front of them, we know why Jason Pres's Jason parents don't follow him. So he, she has to kind of be a little kind of that dreamlike state because like, well, why is she not worried with this her kid? Maybe you know who the hell knows where he is?
2: Sorry. yeah, I- yeah. and, 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 I th- and yeah, ex- exactly. yeah. and and uh, you know, and and I think it's even more pronounced in the Amanda Peterson character, you know, she's sort of the 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 girl that uh, Ethan Hawke has a crush on. And uh, you know, like she, because like she has like maybe three lines in the whole movie. You know, like she's just sort of, you know, she's not a character. She is what is in Ethan Hawke's head. She's like the dream girl. You know, she is sort of like how a thirteen or fourteen year old boy would perceive, you know, a a girl his age. You know, and uh, like to like to me. It, it, it makes it makes the film uh more in that you know kind of dream space which is you know already a you know a place that it, it, it exists in and it's and it just kind of aids it but what, now you have to we have to go back though and feed in on what you do know was
0: cut or what you had heard spoken yeah.
2: about. <laughs> yeah. So um I can tell you like if you guys remember the well i, I talked about it a little bit mary kay place had a bigger part there was a whole family subplot um for the uh the, e- the ethan hawk character and um the the young man on a date in the drive-in where he's pointing at the screen being like that's a traveling mat yeah that's his brother like and and it's completely Ooh. removed from the film like he 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 mentions his brother. He mentions that his brother is going through a jerk phase, but you never see him interact with Ethan Hawke. But that is him in the drive-in. Wow. Um, yeah. And so there was a whole like you know uh, thing with that with that character. And then um, Dick Miller obviously had a much bigger part, um, and uh, you know, and, and and you know there was more resolution with that. And then there was also this whole concept that was explored of something called the world mind, which sure. I think was sort of like a you know a pseudoscience kind of pop thing happening in the in the 70s and the 80s when people were talking about this it. sort of like a collective consciousness kind of thing and it's it's hinted at with you know sort of the shared dream imagery between the boys and with Dick Miller's character you know but um the Dante has said like that there was a much more spiritual aspect to the film that was sort of had to be excised for you know because they were rushing to get it out um the scene towards the end where they're like you know hanging out in the rain by a tree and they're frustrated like no no source of power um like that is all looped that was a completely different scene that and they were not talking about any of that um (laughs) And uh, yeah like it, it's it's my the whole like last like ten minutes of the film is complete just the uh, you know uh, chop suey wow. um, and um but yeah, and I mean I, and I think uh, uh you know, I don't know if there was a lot of you know deleted effects or anything I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing what's on the shout factory blue, but I mean you know, I, I gotta give super super props to ilm because like this is just gorgeous you know model work optical work um you know all, all those uh you know effect sequences are outstanding and uh, i think i think ilm actually got a co-producer credit on the film sure. because it, they were so heavily involved and um uh, you know that that's an interesting. You know, if, if we should definitely talk about the effects because the effects are, you know, a big a big part of uh, uh, you know the the way the movie uh, is, is structured.
1: Yeah, even by eighty standards, this is some stuff that holds up amazingly between the, the the sort of computerized world that's inside Ben's mind, and then the the aliens that they actually meet. That suit work is fantastic and you know that's that's rob botin for you because you know he was creating stuff of dreams and nightmares at this point where one moment you have him creating these horrific visions in the thing and then the next is these wonderful creatures that you know robert ricardo gets to walk around and do the voice of and just it it's you don't look for the seams in them at all you just you really buy it even today yeah. like you know, another no thing and it, holds it, up oh go on Go, no, you go ahead. Well, just another thing that holds up about this is I found myself getting sucked into it again. Like sometimes when you go back and watch these sorts of movies and it's like, oh, I know how they did that shot. Oh, here come, like the brother in the car. is like, here comes that traveling match shot or the fake mm. film with uh, Robert Ricardo is like the knockoff this island, a star Killer, Yeah, like a knockoff this island earth character. Just watching it, it's so easy to slip back into it. And part of it is because of the way Dante sort of helped craft those stories, but also just the people he trusted with for the effects.
2: Yeah. No, totally. Yeah. Rob Robotin is like, for those who don't know, Rob Bottin was probably, you know, in my opinion, I think he's I think he's better than Stan Winston. I think he's better than Steve Johnson. Like from that era, like he was just like an Uber genius. Like he he did like, like you said, the all the incredible stuff on the thing he worked with joe dante on the howling on twilight zone on um, inner space uh, l- uh, lots of stuff um, he and, and he did you know he went on to create he created basically robocop um you know he did total recall like you know he was a, he was an absolute you know genius guy he did, he did tim curry's devil makeup and legend um yeah so like you know yeah he was he was definitely you know firing on all cylinders
0: I I think it's interesting to to go back to that idea of the computer animations in his dream space mind, because even, like again, it it still looks in in some ways flaky, but in in the same breath, it holds up compared to even things that were done later and with bigger budgets that look flimsy and stupid now. When I look at this, I'm like, no, it fits. Mm -hmm. It makes sense and it flows. And it's almost like, it's almost like they knew before we knew what we were going to see today, and just like kind of built something that said like, yeah, it's not going to be as great, but it's going to hold up. Uh, and and I, and I was kind of breathtaking when I when I rewatched it recently. But and then also going back to the uh, and this is this is just slightly stupid though, but going back to the uh, the suits for the aliens at the end because that the the female alien was definitely like the proto female gremlin as well from Gremlins 2. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought so that was funny
1: Well, you even look at the Psy Snoodles that they created digitally for uh, Return of the Jedi And it has a little more like the eyes feel like more explorers than the original Psy puppet that they had
2: Yeah, no, like I, it, it's, it's funny you mentioned Return of the Jedi Because it's like, I, I, to me, Return of the Jedi was sort of the pinnacle of, you know, the uh, traditional analog optical effects um like like to me like that was like sort of the benchmark and then after that it was like you know for uh, for quite a few years i think ilm and all the other companies were just kind of you know just just slightly improving like there weren't really a lot of breakthroughs after that until you get to you know of the computer stuff like you know the stained glass man and young sherlock holmes or the you know the the morphing and willow and the tentacle and abyss you know but uh, for, for 1985, the the computer-generated dream sequences, I think they hold up because they are what they were capable of, like in the sense that like you know they were supposed to be representing something that looked, you know like a diagram, like a you know a comu- like a computer diagram. you know it was it is what it was supposed to be, sort of the same you know as the um, Genesis mock-up in Star Trek II. Like, you know, it didn't need to look better than that, you know, and and or or, or in or in Tron. Yeah, they weren't trying to outdo
0: what was the actual you know, program of the time. Like you, know, you skip skip ahead, forget forget about Tron, skipping ahead like nine, 10 years and then trying to recreate virtual reality in the lawnmower man and just <laughs> how kind of silly it looks and it looks like it looks like pre-Nintendo 64 graphics in essence. And it's not look at anything like what somebody would kind of look at, even if they were fabricating it back then, where in the eighties, they were just like, no, this is probably, this is, you know, if I opened it up and I was able to draw it, this is what it would be. Here you go.
2: But yeah, but that's what, that's what good filmmakers do. You know, like, I, like a, a shitty filmmaker will just use, you know, CG as a crutch. And I mean, we've seen lots of examples, even in recent years of them mm-hmm. like overreaching, Especially with stuff like the de aging or the you know hu- human doubles, you know it's like if it's not ready yet, don't do it. You know, do do it another way. Um, and uh, but yeah, no, I I think uh, yeah the eff- the effects uh, for the time I think they're breathtaking. Like you know, like you don't even see like things like mat lines and stuff. Um, and, there's one there's uh, yeah, one is
0: this- I can see it. Yeah, there's one scene when oh, you there is? see the ship coming towards you. Not at the drive-through, like when it's in like the foresty area. I could definitely feel okay. it. But besides that, it didn't it didn't didn't mesh with me at all. I didn't I didn't notice it.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting because uh one one of the people who was working at ILM at the time was um David Fincher, oh and, uh, he, he 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 talked about uh, he he's he's talked about uh, sort of that that being sort of a uh, a, a low, uh, you know, low morale time at ILM, sort of, you know, they, they, you know, there were no more Star Wars movies coming down, you know, they were working on things like Explorers and Star Trek Three, and, you know, just like weren't being as, uh, you know, uh, it, 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 it wasn't the big breakthrough time that it became, you know, sort of a few years down the road.
1: And another thing that uh, really holds up is just, as you were talking about filmmaking, I think Joe Dante is one of the better one of the best genre filmmakers and just one of the best blockbuster filmmakers of the eighties that people don't talk enough about because yeah, you'll get pings with gremlins, but that's it, but then again, you look at you just look at the howling and Gremlins, and that's like, wow, that's a jump from from subject matter, but then explorers uh interspace, the burbs, like just he had his finger on the pulse of so many different things that the 80s were about like suburban malaise and and you know he had the kid explore the kids uh, adventure movies and then Innerspace is my god interspace is so wonderful
0: yeah but he's it's funny too because he's the he's the guy and again he didn't he doesn't really write he's not listed as a as, as a screenwriter on a lot of this stuff I'm not saying he doesn't have input of course but yeah. he's the guy that very much like we were talking about a while ago with the remake of the blob He's the guy who took all of his love for that 50s Roger Corman feel and bought it to the mainstream with polish and style. And that's why he was so great because he had, it, it was, it's, when you, when you think about matinee, that's the whole point. Matinee and explorers probably show it the most. It's this idea of that typical 50s sci-fi monster alien creature feature, whatever it may be and just bringing it to a modern audience with a modern feel and doing it right.
1: Well, yeah, kind of like when James, he's kind of like the the 80s James Gunn, because James Gunn had all that history with Troma, and then he honed his craft to the point where he gets a movie like Slither, and then Guardians of the Galaxy and Super, and he shows off his skills on a bigger platform. And to that respect, you know, Dante started out with Corman, like Piranha, yeah, with Piranha or Piranha. And slowly worked his way up to, you know, I guess Gremlins is his his hugest blockbuster. Maybe Small Soldiers.
2: I I I really like the James Gunn comparison. That, that is really, like, you know, apt. Yeah, because he, he did, he came, he grew out of that Corman school. He started as an editor, yeah, editing trailers for Roger Corman. And then, um, you know, he and Alan Arkish uh, did their first film, uh, Hollywood Boulevard for uh, uh, for Roger uh, and it was I think believe the cheapest film <laughs> that new world had ever made and and it was sort of it was sort of cobbled together from you know like you know they, they built the story around shots from other films that Roger had done um, and uh, yeah and and uh, but you know yeah and he then he moved on to sort of piranha which you know Steven Spielberg was was his personal favorite uh, Jaws rip off um, and there were a lot. <laughs> at that time, you know, great white, Tintorero, who you know, like, Jaws two. and then, um, yeah, Jaws two, Grizzly, you <laughs> know, and the, uh, yeah, like, uh, but but Spielberg latched onto it, and you know, and and he, you know, sort of invited Dante into the the early, Amblin fold, you know, and you know, with the you know Twilight Zone, and then, Gremlins, and then you know, after Gremlins hit, you know, Dante was in this sort of rarefied position of being able to, you know, kind of, you know, he was the hot guy in town. And, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, I, I think at one point, Warners was courting him for Batman, mm-hmm. um, which, uh, you know, he he didn't quite feel a, a, a simpatico with the material. And so, uh, but he, he went with Explorers, which was, at the time, his first sort of non, you know, horror, you know, film, it was more in the Spielberg, sort of, um, you know, uh, a fantasy, pop fantasy vein, you know, with a lot of science fiction and a lot of, um, you know, it it was was more of a family movie. Um, Yeah, and and I think, uh, yeah, it's one of those things where, like, I don't know if you guys experienced this, but it's like, you know, when you're a kid, you're not like, oh, it's a Joe Dante movie. You're just like, I like this movie. Yeah. And then later you figure out, like, oh, this all these movies I liked were the same guy.
0: Well, it's it's funny. It's funny because I remember very specifically with Explorers, it almost had an opposite effect, not because not because I felt differently, but it wasn't Joe Dante that I had attached to. It was Robert Picardo that I attached to. Because my father, I think, was watching it one time. He's like, You see that guy there when they were showing him in the actual like the star killer he's in the fake movie. And he says, like, that's that same guy over here. And I can't remember what movie it was at that at that point or another. And I'm like, and I just became I became obsessed with Robert Picardo at that point. I tried to follow everything he was doing. And it was later on in my life that I attached more to the directors and writers of things. And I, I, I was definitely stuck on actors, I think, for a little bit.
1: And Robert Ricardo is a good one to get stuck on, too. Yeah. The, cow- the cowboy, man. The cowboy and then eventually uh, the chief of security in Gremlins 2. All right.
0: I have to say, this, this. is I'm just kind of getting off the point a little bit, though. But here's a good, for instance, though, about the idea of seeing a movie like this when I was a kid and rewatching it. Not only later in my life, but like just yesterday, let's say, I remember, like it's the like like it happened yesterday. That when I was a kid watching this, and the ship crashes through the drive-through concession stand, and then they 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 intercut that with the shots from the Star Killer movie, like it being a poor set and like as almost as happening the same at the same time. As a kid, I thought it was. I thought they were trying to say that. Oh this is a live play that's happening here and just being projected on a screen over here. I did not get it as a kid. I totally flew by me like I had no clue what the hell was going on.
2: Yeah and it's 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 so funny because like I I put Dante in that same uh you know uh pedestal as you know guys like uh you know Terry Gilliam, Tim Burton, Guillermo del Toro, Jean-Pierre mm-hmm. Genet, you know like like guys who you know like are really great fantastical visualists that have like a signature like it's not just like a movie it is a Joe Dante movie and you can feel it I actually I feel like he and Tim Burton are particularly you know a a good comparison because like you know that they both you know I think Joe Dante wanted to be a cartoonist you know Tim Burton started you know as an illustrator uh, at Disney and and uh, they're both obsessed with you know sort of you know, 1950s and 60s horror and stuff. You know, I think the biggest difference between the two is Tim Burton is is sort of, his sort of signature is gothic. And I think Joe Dante's signature is more like Mad Magazine. It's more uh, satiric. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, so it's like, yeah, like Tim Burton was a better choice to do something like Batman, but Joe Dante would have been a better choice to do something like Mars Attacks.
1: <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, could you imagine Joe Dante's Mars Attacks? It basically would have been Gremlins 2 again, but it would have been Martians. And yeah. Yeah. Just that yeah. creative anarchy that he brings to things, like cramming panels full of Easter eggs and gags. Like, you know, the kids go to Charles M. Jones High School, uh, Middle School. And it's like, yeah. oh, why does that name sound familiar? And then you think back to all the <laughs> Looney Tunes you've watched. Yeah.
2: Yeah. No, exactly. You know, there, there, was, there was an artist for um, Mad Magazine named Will Elder. Um, and he, uh, he he had a whole uh, uh, sort of a, a style which you called chicken fat which is he would you know he would he would draw whatever like was sort of the main joke but he would have lots of little jokes just happening in the uh, background and, and so there's a lot of chicken fat in uh, in Joe Dante movies
1: <sighs> it's beautiful but
2: thinking about your comparison between him
0: and, and Burton I, I totally understand what you're saying and I get behind it 100% percent but kind of folding it back into that idea that Explorers was such a pleasant memory for me, not just as a movie, as a kid, is where Burton, I think, is just more focused on a visual sense than anything else. And not saying that he can't have heart in his movies, but Joe Dante's movies have so much heart. And it it kind of makes you nostalgic for just not even maybe your own childhood, but just that feeling of what you want it to be
1: especially explorers like yeah. this movie had me like i i felt it i missed it up a little bit when they're first christening it and they just say the name like what about the thunder road and it's like oh man it, it's just it's such a beautiful moment that in anyone else's hands that would have so been played like the music would have swelled at the right point and not to say that wouldn't have been, given me a, a feeling it would not have been as memorable memorable as just these kids having a kid moment
0: yeah, they may, they'd probably played for the wah-wah when the glass doesn't break or something like that, compared to them having, like you said, just them having a moment.
1: Yeah, and also yeah. it just helps that, you know, you had some of the most amazing kid performers at the time. I mean, Ethan Hawke and, and River Phoenix, you know, being who they were. Just, you know, that's two-thirds it was, of it. It was both, and, of first, both of their first movies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow, see, yeah, I didn't remember that. That's even more yeah. impressive.
0: See, I'm still trying to pitch. I, I talked to Ethan Hawke a few times, and every time we, we have, like, no time to talk, so I can't bring it up, but I'm trying to pitch him to produce a remake where he'll play the Dick Miller part hmm. and, you know, just get it, just to get it done. Like, again, I'm not one for, I don't think I want to see a remake of Explorers, but if it's going to get done, which eventually do, we'll get done, have him, like, somewhere behind the scenes helping it get made.
2: Yeah, there's definitely been movement on, you know, the... They're trying to mine any kind of 80s nostalgia there is, you know, especially when, you know, obviously Explorers had a huge impact on, you know, things like Stranger Things and Super 8. And, you know, like there's no doubt that the people behind those have seen Explorers, Um, you know, but like, uh, yeah, like I I know that Paramount was, they were trying to do like, like, like turn it into like a Chronicle kind of a thing. I think it was gonna be like, you know, sort of more low budget, like kind of remake back in 2014 Mm. um but then in 2018 it was announced that uh um carrie Carrie fukunaga and uh david lowry are were working on a uh pilot for a a tv version and i think their sensibility is much more in tune with uh you know like you can tell that they're they're actual fans of this film and they they would they would respect kind of the you know the the interesting tone and not just you know l- l- you know glom on to the the you know the easy elevator pitch of oh kids build a spaceship you know yeah i mean i don't want to i don't want
0: to assert anything based on just my own feelings but you think about carrie and you think about the it movies and even though he was jettisoned from the first it re- remake that they made most of the script was based on what he originally put out and then they released the second part and it completely you know falls apart I think it's his sensibilities for that nostalgic feeling that made that script work. So imagining what he could do nostalgia wise for almost anything, I'd be really interested interested to see.
1: And then, plus, you look at David Lowry's reimagining a Pete's Dragon. Like he took this very Disney movie and then just turns it into this thing that looks totally different and just hits on another level. And the fact that you have those two developing a pilot is is very very hopeful and even if i'm I'm sure they're the reverent to the material but just they're reverent to that feeling and yeah and another really interesting thing is going back to the whole fact that this was out around the same time as back to the future you had robert zemeckis who was also under steven spielberg's wing and to a certain extent while zemeckis is definitely a great filmmaker in his own right at times he almost felt like the guy you got if you couldn't get Spielberg like he was very much enveloped in Spielberg's shadow versus Joe Dante who even though he worked with him he was never overshadowed by Steven Spielberg because he wasn't trying to occupy the same orbit
2: right yeah I mean I I think Steven Spielberg certainly um you know gave everybody who worked at Amblin you know sort of free reign you know there's a lot of movies that they made, which would never you know, get made under a regular studio system, but that got made because Steven Spielberg had an exceptional amount of clout at the time. But I mean, Spielberg did have, you know, definitely, definitely had some impact on him. Like, I, I mean, I know, I know that Gremlins, as written, was originally going to be much more of a you know, horror movie. And then it was Spielberg's idea to, you know, originally Gizmo became a Gremlin. And he's like, you know, we should keep him a good guy. We should, you know, and from that simple, you know, you know, you can call it, you know, sentiment, you can call it, you know, whatever you want, but it gave gremlins something that, you know, a typical, you know, you know, whatever critters or whatever, you know, didn't have. It had a, yeah, it gave it a hook. It gave a heart. It gave it, you know, and it gave you, you know, a character to, to sort of glom onto who, who, who could be, you know basically the the hero
0: and it and it gave you sequel opportunities
2: <laughs> yes hey. much to their much
0: to their chagrin later i love gremlins. i don't care yeah. what anybody says gremlins 2 is amazing
2: so one oh oh no, no 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 gremlins 2
1: is amazing but like i'm sure oh, yeah. they Studios. regret
2: making the studio regrets making it with every fiber
1: <laughs> of their being i love um, it because dante got that blank check and he cashed it
2: yes yes absolutely and um uh, Jason Preston makes a a, a little cameo yep. I, you know,
1: uh, it's as funny, a yeah, yeah.
2: ice cream. The yogurt jerk in that movie. <laughs> yes, the yogurt jerk. That's exactly. him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. the, the whole cast of the, the, yeah. The whole cast of this movie, you know, there's 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 some interesting things happening with this cast. Like, I mean, obviously it was Ethan Hawke's first movie, but um, I I he, he he's talked about how even though he loved making the film you know, and he loved working with Joe Dante and all that, that, like, because the movie had not been successful, uh, he got it, it was actually a source of, like, bullying for him, like, when Hmm. in school, like, like, he, like, sort of, it was something he had to kind of live down, you know, that people would make, you know, kids in his class would make fun of him for being in this movie, and um, you know, he didn't really, you know, catch another wave until he did Dead Poets Society, and he actually, he actually tried out for the Will Wheaton part in Stand By Me, so that there could have been, a, a explorer's uh, uh you know reunion there but it didn't you know it didn't happen um and obviously you know river phoenix you know uh you know uh, you know enough's been said about you know how great yeah. he was and you know how wonderful but um but you do get in this movie uh you do get the first pairing of, of river phoenix and bradley Gregg, who you might not even recognize him but he was um he appeared with river phoenix again in stand by me and in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and they were really good buddies. Um, so, like, yeah, he's part of Steve Jackson's gang in Explorers, and uh, and then he's in Keeper Sutherland's gang and Stand by Me, and he's in the 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 robbery gang. And in he, he definitely got typecast, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, but it's it's that's an interesting sort of uh, bit with him. And uh, and as you talked about Robert Picardo, um, who was a you know, a, a a Joe Dante regular starting with um, The Howling, where he played, a, you know, a very disturbed, you know, character, and then, you know, just continued to confound with each sort of, you know, casting, you know, like he he sort of became the, uh, um, uh, what's the name of that guy from Pan's Labyrinth and all those movies? Doug, Doug Jones. Jones. He was like yeah. the Doug Jones of his day, you know, he would, yeah, he would just, he, he would be, in, you know, he was in Legend, he was in this, he was in, you know, you know, like Matthew's father said. Please, <laughs> well, he's, he's, he's a,
0: he's technically, it's funny. You know, I don't know at what point in my life I realized the true meaning of the word, the term, but when I was a kid, my father actually, his explanation for what a character actor would be would be the guy you see everywhere, but you can't remember his name. <laughs> you know, and that guy. And that was kind of like Robert Picardo for a long time. It's like he was in everything, but maybe you didn't know his name. I find that funny, too, though, your story about, uh, you know, like, what if, what if it's like River Phoenix is going out for movies? Like, hey, is there any gangs in this movie? Because I know a guy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it cares really well with him. Like, they're, they're shit hot. I swear. You've seen yeah. Explorers. You've, Explor- you've seen Explorers.
0: Yeah. It's funny, too, though, because I, I was looking at the IMTP page for, for the movie today. And everybody is listed as Steve Jackson gang, including the guy who plays Steve Jackson. He's not even he's yeah. had his own listening. He's like Steve Jackson gang.
1: Gang <laughs> <laughs> okay, so mythical
2: yeah. the must be re- protected. It it is interesting that that like they definitely you know they, the the cast all you know apparently had a great time making the film and I I know I, I this is a weird nugget but I read I, I, I I'm interested in River Phoenix and the, he, I I remember reading him. Um, that uh like he like he he came from a very non traditional family uh like his his family was kind of part of like a commune slash cult mm-hmm. like religious group uh and they had some you know he definitely grew up weird yeah. and um uh, there was a there was a ceremony that his family had when he lost his virginity where like the, basically his family all gathered around a tent and like river phoenix and this girl did what they did in the in the tent and then and apparently like you know he still had a you know uh, uh, he, was, he was he was still you know communicating with joe dante and i remember him he, they said in the book like he wrote to joe dante like it finally happened <laughs> <laughs> oh my god but you know it's, it's all it's strange
0: though because because of joaquin a lot of these stories are either retold or come back out again but i what, this is another reason why i love having this show to talk to mike and, and, and all of our guests about these films that kind of don't get talked in the mainstream anymore is because I had one of those moments where I was at a family gathering for some holiday or something, what it was, and a family member had their friend with them there and they're talking and they're, they're you know, early twenties, mid twenties maybe. And she's like, I just found out that Joaquin Phoenix had a brother who was also an actor. And I'm like, oh my God. It's like, mm. it's, it's so strange though, because, you know even though he had a lot more work River Phoenix was almost like our James Dean for our generation, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: you know, and so when, I understand that, and everybody's going to grow up with the same background or same family who's going to kind of push these things on them, so like I'll have, I know a lot of stuff when I was like 10 years old that a 10 year old should have known about a lot of actors and stuff, because my father and my mother were so keen on burgeoning my interest in it. So Mm -hmm. The fact that there are people who just all of a sudden like oh oh, there's a river phoenix too i wonder if he's related to joaquin phoenix it's like oh my god
2: yeah i mean you know and and, uh who who at the time was known as leaf phoenix yes Uh, true. That's also true uh, when he was in space camp uh another kids and the list oh my god especially
1: because there's like space camp stuff plastered all over these kids bedrooms like not yeah. space camp the movie but like you know a poster for huntsville alabama or just a little space camp stickers like that was still the cool thing then
2: yeah no yeah i, th- I think river phoenix you know the james dean comparisons are very apt he was also like i mean it, it, it would be very easy to say he was you know sort of the previous generation's heath ledger you mm-hmm. know like you know he was, he was one of these you know guys who just you know he, he started young and you know just like was, was just you know so talented like s- clearly like so much just raw, you know, uh, stuff going on with this. Guy. You know, there's a lot going on with him. He, 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 the camera loved him, you know, and he could have done anything, and he did. Do, he, he did. You know, River did so much in his in the short span of time. I mean, he did comedies. He did. You know, he, you know, he he played a junkie. He played Indiana Jones. You know, he did sneakers. He, 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 he did so. Yeah, it's. Sneakers. I got to put, put Little Odessa on the uh, on the list. Oh yeah. Wait, oh, Little Odessa, is that is that, is that River Phoenix? Yeah. yeah. That's that word furlong.
0: No, that's that's River Phoenix. Sydney Poitier, River Phoenix. You no, know, you're you're talking about you're talking about little little you're talking about little Nikita. Little Nikita, sorry, little Nikita. <laughs> well, I still gotta put yeah. little Nikita on the on the list. Oh.
2: Yeah. But um but yeah no um uh, but i i i you know the 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 pedigree of the movie also you know like the technical pedigree you know like robert f boyle was the production designer you know and he goes back to hitchcock like he was a production designer on like north by northwest and the birds and marnie you know so the movie has like a very classic you know look to it like you know like the you know robert f boyle knew how to build sets and like you know and 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 use color in a way that you know I think a lot of you know production designers and directors don't utilize today um yeah yeah I'm
0: looking actually I'm, I'm sorry I'm looking something up too because I can't remember because you know we have everything you mentioned we didn't mention you know it's written by Eric Luke yeah. you know and you know I, now that's the thing I like I almost forgot like all the other films
2: that he wrote and I had to look, <laughs> I had to look it up it's not there's not there's not a lot meant, like he did some yeah yeah, he he did the not by not quite human sequels for the Disney Channel. Yeah, um, but the, nope. yeah, but then it's then it's and like he, yeah, that's only films he wrote, and then he's got
0: you know TV show stuff like episodes of Gargoyles and Teenage Mutant Ninja yeah. Turtles. You know, so like here's a here's an, also a guy that you know, if, if if
2: this movie didn't exist, would we ever talk about him? Well, it's it's funny you said that because I was listening to your guy's Robert Wool interview, which is very fun you know that guy knows how to hold court if you haven't heard that episode definitely listen to that episode but you know robert will mentioned when he was at paramount in the mid-80s doing screenplay you know as a contract screenwriter and he mentioned eric luke he mentioned eric luke as as, as a you know a, a a prominent uh yeah sort of you know studio guy and you know and i, I don't know what the story is if if eric you know uh wrote it you know, for Paramount, if like somebody at Paramount told him, you know, hey, we need an ET type thing, you know, like, or, or what the, you know, some people have told me, I, I think I've read in some places that the script actually predates ET, but mm-hmm. uh, I don't I, I don't know what the story is. Maybe they get into that on the new um, disc, but, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the script itself, you know, it's, uh, This is actually something I wanted to get into with you guys, because to me, the the biggest issue I think people have when they watch the film is, you know, I mean, if you hate it immediately, you know, whatever, you're you're, you're dead to me. But like, I can see people, and I have seen my, I've shown it to friends, and this has happened. They're into it. They're so having fun. They're so like, oh my God, where is this going to go? and then it gets to the third act Mm. and this the you know the story is that you know when eric luke's script just had the kids going to the spaceship and playing baseball with the aliens and that was it and joe dante was and joe dante was like we don't have a third act basically and so on the fly they came up with this you know idea of these aliens who were, you know, sort of relatable as children and who, um, you know, it's sort of knew about Earth via pop culture. And I, I, want, I want to know how you guys kind of feel about this, the big swing it takes in that third act when you get the, when, it, when the movie has to sort of show you its cards.
1: Well, I love it. Oh, I absolutely love it. And pa- I think part of the reason is Looking back at it now, it's like, wow, that's kind of like a prototype for what Galaxy Quest would eventually do, where these aliens are basically being raised on our culture. And even in their case, our culture is shaping this narrative around warfare and how we treat people and how we do consumerism that we were very ingrained in in the 80s. And just, you know, even just look at the kids of the 80s, looking at that same, th- those same sci-fi movies, those same ads, that same culture, and just they were, the aliens and those kids were kind of growing up the same way. Like those past values were shaping their minds about this and they had to come together in the end and sort of be like, look, that's, that's not who we are. Like aliens don't kill everyone, humans don't kill everyone. And it's very poignant kind of looking at it now I mean, sure, as a kid or maybe just as a silly entertainment, it's like, oh, okay. so they just the aliens just sing Little Richard to them and like recite commercials. But then you look at it, it's like, no, this is first of all, they're getting the signals from us that it takes that long to travel out there. So science points there, but also speculative fiction points where it's like these aliens are raised the same as as Earth kids. They're really not that much different.
0: I'm going to go, bear with me here, because I'm going to go on a three-point rant now. Um, Because I think it works, A, on two levels. Whether it was intentional or not, the idea that it's not, because again, when we're watching our human children in the movie, our human protagonists in the movie, we're thinking about the idea of their dreams and what it means to want to do something and do it and actually go ahead and go, go through with it. But in the same point, it's also about needing connections because Wolfgang wouldn't have anybody if it, uh, that's River Phoenix's character, if it wasn't for Ethan Hawke's character. Um, you know, and Jason Preston's character, you know, is that loner, didn't want to talk to anybody because he didn't want to deal with anybody having to, you know, know about his lifestyle. And if the events didn't happen with Steve Jackson's gang, they may have not gotten together in that sense. So it's about those connections. And so the aliens in, in this movie, they're their kids, but they want. They want that connection too. That's all they care about. Yes, they're maybe a little more rebellious because they stole their dad's car, in essence, um, and you know, kind of going out a little more of a limb and having like you know, a rager in their mind. Um, but it's you know, kind of wanting to connect with the humans, and you know, and I don't want to give everything away. You know, for the people who haven't seen it who may listen to this and they go watch it after. But you know, like there are so many, you know, uh, foreshadowing pieces in the movie about you know the, the germs with the War of the Worlds. Uh, you know, and then, you know, that's why they didn't have as much contact with us because they couldn't, you know, they couldn't have that. So they had to disinfect the the humans before they came on the ship and so on and so forth. Um, But they want that connection. They're willing to break the rules to get that connection. And so it works on that level. And it also works on the idea of going back to Joe Dante wanting to remake these 50s sci-fi films or bringing them into the future because those were all, the, the Cold War nuclear war that's what all those 50 size five films are about and the, the fear of it and what it can do to us and what it may do and what we want to avoid and that's all bought back into what happens in the third act of this film with all that being said though i wonder if i had never seen this film as a kid would i enjoy it at all as an adult i think my thoughts on it are built on witnessing it as a child not understanding it to its fullest and then being able to come back to it later on and dig into it and get more out of it so i don't know if i showed it to my girlfriends who've never seen it if they go like what the fuck are you showing me or if, they <laughs> or if they'd have to wait to me here go through those rants to go like all
2: right yeah i get it but i'm not gonna watch it again right yeah yeah to somebody who maybe has never seen it like it just seems like you know either either it's too much of a kids movie or it's too weird or I don't know but it's like you know but yeah but like you know I agree with everything you guys said about you know the third act and you know and how it you know sort of used utilizes the footage from you know sort of the Ray Harryhausen movies and the War of the Worlds and all that stuff you know to you know you know drive home you know sort of be like the aspirin and the applesauce kind of a thing like where you You're Mm. you're getting the point. You're getting the sort of the satirical political point, you know. But it's not. um, But it's being being fed to you via pop culture, as opposed to like if you look at. um, uh, I'm sure you guys have seen, the special edition of uh, the abyss, James Cameron's The Abyss. Yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah. yeah. So in that, the in in the the special edition, which is extended, it it has a whole sequence where. the aliens you know i forgot what they're called the 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 emts or whatever you know the ntis
1: they're yeah.
2: showing um ed harris you know like that they can you know that, that that they can use the wave to destroy the world you know and then and and, and, and you know and, and and he's like why are you doing this and then they show him it's the exact same thing as explorers but like no joke it's just like you know yeah. Mushroom clouds and Holocaust and bombings, and you know, and uh, you know, and you yeah. know, burning guy in Vietnam, and you know, JFK's head exploding, you know, whatever. Like, you know, it's just like it's the actual stuff that is the subtext of yeah. the explorer sequence, but it's just so, like, you know, uh, you know, hitting the nail way too hard on the head, and you know, it's 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 sort of why I prefer, you know, uh, somebody with the sensibilities of. Joe Dante, where you know he can he can make the point without you know sort of bludgeoning you um, with it.
1: Well, yeah, just like that whole the little speech that uh, Mr. Wing gives at the end of Gremlins about Billy not being responsible with a pet. It's like simple, <laughs> firm, but it's, del- it's like a little bit of tongue in cheek. But at the same time, it's just like no, this is the message. I'm not. You're not a kid.
2: And yeah, even dude. if you
1: are a kid, I can talk to you like an adult.
2: Oh, so uh, the I think that the cool thing about if you're a fan of Joe Dante, like a hardcore fan, the all, all the pop culture montages in the third act have a special resonance because Joe Dante's first ever movie project was a thing called the Movie Orgy. Yeah, um, yeah. Which, if you which if you if you've never seen it, is it's basically like a four hour long you know just just you know collection of you know various clips from you know 1950s tv you know ephemeral films movies you know all sorts of you know commercials it's basically like you know a pop culture smorgasbord and it's all cut together you know very funny you know and almost like has a narrative i got to see it at bam a few years ago and uh you know and what is interesting is i think like he utilize the same um techniques for you know all the montages in uh this this scene and we're talking about in explorers and with that i would say it's
0: time for everybody to go catch explorers if you haven't seen it again the blu-ray is coming out may 25th you'll probably hear this day after but if you if you don't want to go purchase it because you don't have your physical media anymore it's on prime for you to watch now If if you're a prime member you can stream it for free or you can rent it
1: if you want to catch us on Twitter, it's at Rentals Overdue. On Facebook, at Overdue Rentals. On Instagram, at Overdue Rentals Show. And of course, as Matthew mentioned, Overdue uh, at gmail.com is where you can send all of your inquiries, suggestions, and requests for the movie orgy to be brought back again, because I still want to see that.
2: Yes. We'll, we'll get to, we'll get to that it's, too.
1: <laughs> yeah. If,
2: if, you, if you think watching four hours of, uh, you know, old movie clips and stuff is going to be boring. You're dead wrong. It is the most fun you'll ever have with an audience. I, if it's ever playing near you, please see it.
0: Max, that's, Max, thanks so much for joining us. It's fantastic having you to talk about this with us. Oh,
2: it was my pleasure. And I, I guess we'll, we'll all see each other in our dreams, right guys? Uh, or whenever we do toys. Yeah. <laughs>